Oh, who wants to talk about their feelings? <laughs> I really am the most logical choice. Um, I really am the most logical choice to talk to you this morning about feelings because after all, what do Emperor Palpatine, Friedrich Nietzsche, Elon Musk, and Chad Rags all have in common? We have the same Myers-Briggs personality profile. We do feelings well. We do feelings well. INTJs unite, right? Some very, some not very nice people, Lydia Proctor, call it the uh, the know-it-all personality, the kind of robotic facts don't care about your feelings personality. And honestly, if I had feelings, I imagine that would hurt quite a bit. <laughs> I am excited to be speaking to you, with you today, though. And on this topic especially. Because I think that it's true, at least it's true for me, that people, that few people feel doubt more profoundly or are hunted by doubt more doggedly than a person who has allowed themselves to live under the illusion that they should have all the answers. The the hypocrisy that some people wear is a false righteousness as a cover for sin. The hypocrisy that other people wear is a false certainty as a cover for doubt. So what do you do when you feel doubt? How do you deal with doubt? How do you live with doubt? Seems like when doubt enters into your life, it's like someone has suddenly hit the dimmer switch. Images that were once clear and vibrant now seemed washed out by an intruding darkness. The confidence of a person walking fully in the light is replaced by a hesitant, unsteady walk of a person just waiting to step on that mislaid toy or just waiting to hit his shin on the coffee table. Someone just hits the dimmer switch. You were so sure of yourself. Sure of your ability, sure of easy success, and suddenly you run into that wall. We've all hit it at some point or another. You fail. You falter. You find that suddenly you're not so sure. Maybe you weren't who you thought you were. Maybe you don't have what it takes, and everything gets just a little bit dimmer. You were so sure of others. You knew who you could trust. You knew who you could rely on. You were sure that he had your back. You were sure that she would always be there for you. And suddenly, you're not so sure. And everything just gets a little bit dimmer. Or what about God? You were so sure about God. You were not only sure that God was there, but you were also sure that He was present. Present in your life. Present in the world. In His love, He would never abandon you. He would never forsake you. Your confidence never wavered. Your confidence never faltered. But suddenly, you find that you're not so sure. 
a stray question enters into your mind and that one stray question attracts a host of other unanswered questions, suddenly you're not so sure. Or tragedy strikes. Tragedy strikes and and suddenly God seems so distant, so removed, so uncaring even. Or, Or maybe nothing happens at all. Life is just kind of ordinary. And you feel let down. Where is the excitement and the thrill of God? And so you find yourself suddenly in doubt. And the world just gets a little bit dimmer. A little bit darker. This kind of doubt, it strikes me, does go beyond our thoughts. We assume, and us apologetics guys often assume wrongly, that the brain, the mind, is the factory of doubt. But I'm not so sure that that's true. The mind is not the factory of doubt. Doubts have their origin. They have their birth much deeper down. Doubt, it's very appropriate to talk about our feelings when it comes to doubt because doubt originates in our gut. It's more than just about a way of thinking. This this kind of doubt feels like golems stalking us across the plains of Mordor. Or to use a more biblical metaphor, this kind of doubt, it feels like you're dying of thirst. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. I first became aware of this psalm by singing the words at Camp LRCA as a junior high student sitting next to Amber McManus, my, my uh, camp girlfriend. <laughs> I remember sitting around that campfire and singing the words, As the deer panteth, wasn't sure what panteth was, but it sounded biblical. As the deer panteth for streams of water, so my soul longs for thee. That was my first introduction to this psalm. But I have a problem with this psalm. I have a problem with the way that we sing it. The words of the psalm... The words of the psalm and the tone of the song seem to be completely mismatched. It's sort of like a screamo version of Silent Night. It just doesn't work. (laughs) 
we sing the Psalms of or the words of Psalm 42 like they're actually the words of Psalm 23. But there are no still quiet waters in Psalm 42. There are torrents, waterfalls, the chaos of the deep. In fact, water is an image that winds its way throughout this entire psalm. David is dying of thirst, but ironically, he's surrounded by water. Verse chapter 3, or verse 3 rather. Like a deer, he's thirsty. But in a cruel irony, he's only able to drink his own tears. This sounds like a Web City football coach. Um, my son, my son played seventh grade football this year. And he came home from practice early in the year. He came home from practice and he said, Dad, you'll never believe it. There were like three or four boys, they were crying during practice today. And I said, well, it better not have been you, boy. He's like, no, no, no. I'm like, well, what did, what did your coach say? What did your coach do? <laughs> and my son said, well, he said, we we're, we we're kind of in a drought, right? Hadn't rained in a while. He said, well, boys, as long as you're crying, get down and give me 20 push-ups because the least you could do is water my lawn with your tears. <laughs> Not a lot of compassion there. (laughs) I'm dying of thirst and all I have to drink are my own tears. Verse 3. Verse 4. Not only are his tears his drink, but he says, my very soul is being poured out. Verse 5 and 11. My soul, it says my soul is disturbed within me. But this word, if you actually look at the way this word is used in other places, this word actually has the connection of the war, the roar of the waters, the roar of the ocean. This is, this is, this is a term all about water. My soul is perturbed, disturbed, and roaring within me. Verse 6 talks about how he's in the land of the Jordan, which leads a lot of people to think that the psalmist is actually near the headwaters of the Jordan River, far from Jerusalem when he's writing this psalm. Makes you wonder whether, whether or not he's actually within ear, earshot of the bubbling waters of the river as he's, as he's penning the words of this psalm. Verse 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. I actually like the way Eugene Peterson chooses to translate this verse. He says, chaos calls to chaos. To the tune of white water rapids, your breaking surf, your thundering breakers crash and crush me. All he wants is a drink. But what he gets is wave after crashing wave. He's dying of thirst and he's surrounded by water. Water is often a negative symbol in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Water represented fear, it represented chaos, it, it represented the unknown. Often it's, oftentimes it even represented the judgment of God. It was a place where you needed to meet God's salvation the most. And it's not by accident that we find the very words of this psalm on the lips of Jonah in Jonah 2 from the belly of the fish. This is not a psalm, you understand, that sits peacefully around a campfire. This is a psalm that paces anxiously. David isn't sentimental about this deer. Oh, look at the cute little deer getting a drink of water. Oh, he's jealous. He's ticked. Stupid deer showing off. Gets to drink water. And here I am longing for God, dying of thirst. I think we've also misidentified the genre of this psalm. Eugene Peterson, again in the message, he translates verse 11 this way. He says, Why are you down in the dumps, dear soul? Why are you crying the blues? This isn't isn't a cozy, comfortable campfire song. This is David, beat up acoustic guitar in hand, singing the blues. You can always recognize the blues. It's got a distinctive cadence. It's got a distinctive sound. 
It's got a distinctive note. They call it the blue note or the worried note. It's a note that's just a little bit off. It's just a little bit flat. And it's in the worried note. That's where the blues lives. In that worried note. And this psalm is filled with worried notes. I'm a half a million miles from nowhere. I'm far from home. I miss the old days and the old ways. I miss worshiping with my people and with my God in His holy city. I miss feeling alive instead of, instead of feeling half dead, dying of thirst. I'm mocked by my, my, by my enemies. Where is your God anyway, big man? Not so big anymore. And their mockery would mean nothing except that I've been asking the same thing. I want to meet the living God. I need to meet the living God. My soul is troubled. I'm a man of constant sorrow. I'm cast down. I feel it all the way down to my bones. I can't, I can't choose to stop needing water and in the same way I can't choose to stop needing the living God. St. Augustine said, You have made us for you and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Pascal, you know I love Pascal. Pascal said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus. But people will desperately try to fill that gap up with anything and everything from this world. They will try to to fill that need for living water with the waters of this world, and every single time it leads them wanting desperately more, feeling unsatisfied, feeling lost. David said, as a deer desperately needs water, I desperately need God, but I'm only met with chaos, worry, and doubt. I remember you, God, but it seems seems like you've forgotten me. And I'm asking this morning, can you identify with any of that? Is there anything there this morning that you can identify with? Can I talk to the freshmen? Where are the freshmen at? Can I talk to the freshmen? You're a long way from that CIY. You're a long way from that church camp. You're a long way from that youth minister who never assigned homework. When the presence of God felt so real, when your faith felt so alive, do you feel like you're a long way from home? Maybe some of you halfway through your first semester can identify with David. You can identify with that feeling of being a long way from home, a long way from God. You find yourself doubting, was any of that real, really? Was any of that real? I want to go back to that place, but I'm not sure that I know how. What about the sophomores? Can I talk to the sophomores? You know, I changed my major three times during my sophomore year. I know some of you could identify with that. I've seen you marching through the administration building. Can I tell you my sophomore year was terrifying? I went to school vaguely feeling a call to ministry, and by my sophomore year I wasn't so sure. Surely there are other people who can do this whole ministry thing. What was I thinking anyway? Did I have what it takes? Do I even want to have what it takes? I was hearing the worried note sounding all around me and my anxiety melted into doubt. Doubt of my calling. Doubt of my calling. Doubting even God. 
Is God there? Does He care about me? Is He faithful? Because frankly, at the end of the day, it's, it was easier for me to doubt my calling if I could doubt God. What about you upperclassmen? Grizzled veterans. Back in my day, we went to school at 7 in the morning and we liked it! <laughs> Are any of you worn out and weary? <laughs> Amen. Balancing school, life, relationships, what happens after graduation. I wonder, has that weariness drained your enthusiasm? Made you just a little cynical? My observation, and I've been doing this for a little while now, my observation is that many students have at least one gut punch semester while they're here. Sickness, maybe a death in the family, a broken relationship. Have you had that semester where deep was calling out to deep? Maybe you're in that semester right now. Where wave after wave after wave seems like it's crashing down on you and you think, Oh my soul, why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? There's not a person in this room who can't identify with these feelings. Not a person in this room who hasn't at some point or another struggled with these feelings of doubt. Where we haven't There's not a single person who hasn't been stung by that mocking question, where is your God anyway? My friend Nikki asked that question of me recently after this shooting on Sunday. Where is your God, Christian? She's an atheist, grew up in the church, now is far away from God. About as far as a person could get. And one of her primary problems is that she believes that every belief statement must be known with absolute certainty. So faith to her is irrational. And this keeps her far from God and has given her an extremely unhealthy and naive belief in the explanatory power of science. I've tried at different times to explain to her that all people walk by faith. There are no exceptions. Which also means that all people must walk by some measure of doubt. To doubt is to be human. Doubt is one of those things that separates us from the robots. Robots don't doubt. A robot doesn't doubt anything, but humans are unique in that we know just enough to know just how much we don't know. The question is not whether we will or will not have faith. The question has always been about the faithfulness of whom or what we have chosen to place our faith in. So, for those of us who have placed our faith in God, the living God, what do we do when we feel doubt? Well, I think I know what we shouldn't do. What we shouldn't do is be surprised or ashamed. No, what we actually must guard against is doubt that is allowed to calcify into unbelief and rebellion. It is this kind of doubt that I think Jesus warns us about in that parable, the parable of the farmer sowing his seed. You know the parable. If you don't, just go sit in front of the statue and maybe it'll be given to you. The parable of the sower farmer goes out to sow his seed. He sows it rather indiscriminately. Some falls on the path, it never takes root. Some falls on fertile soil, and it produces an abundant harvest. But there's two other soils. There's two other soils. Some falls on rocky soil. But because that soil is shallow, the plants didn't develop any roots. And when the sun came up, they withered and died. 
And what I want to suggest to you from this is that we come to see our doubt as an opportunity for growth. Doubt can easily turn to unbelief when our faith is shallow and when our faith is without roots. Alistair McGrath puts it this way. He says, doubt is probably a permanent feature of the Christian life. It's like some kind of spiritual growing pain. Sometimes it recedes into the background, at other times it comes to the forefront, making its presence felt with a vengeance. Tim Keller puts it this way. says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. Always at risk of disease. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Be very careful about a faith which has no struggle. Be very careful about an easy faith, a faith that never asks any questions, that never struggles with mystery, that is never frustrated by ambiguities. Because such a faith will never grow the type of roots needed to survive the heat of the day. Your doubts present to you an opportunity to go deeper. To be honest, and I tell my apologetic students this every spring, I get much more nervous about a person who claims they never struggle with doubt than a person who honestly does struggle with doubt. Are you having doubts? I know it's a scary thing. It's a dark thing. But we worship a big God, a God who is always bigger than our capacity to master and comprehend Him. I love the story. I don't know if it's a true story or not, but I read it, so it's true to me. Um, <laughs> I love the story about Augustine walking on the, the beach near Carthage as he was writing his massive book on the Trinity. And he encounters a, a little boy digging a hole in the sand along the beach. And the water was rushing into the hole, and then the, 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 the kid would dig some more out. The water would rush in. Augustine asked the young man, he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm digging a hole for the sea. And Augustine looked at the child and he said, oh child, you will never dig a hole deep enough to house the entire sea. And the child looks back at Augustine and he says, and neither will you ever write a book to house the mysteries of God. We worship a big God. We worship a mysterious God. Doubt, your doubts, are an invitation to go deeper. They're an invitation to learn. You're in the right place. They're an invitation to study. They're an invitation to pray and to worship and to celebrate the wonders and the mysteries of a really big God. But the second thing, the last thing, Jesus also says in the parable that some of the seed fell among the thorns. Jesus says that this is the person who receives the word, but, but he's unfruitful because it's choked out by all the worries and all of the anxieties of this world. When you're feeling doubt, come to see your doubt as an opportunity for recalibration. 
an opportunity for recalibration. When we become obsessed with our doubt, it grows. Anxieties, worries, they feed our doubts. I worked in a, in a laboratory for several years when I was in high school and college um, doing uh, environmental testing on water and soil. And we would use these instruments to, 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 to do our tests. And about every single day, we would have to stop what we were doing and we would have to recalibrate our instruments. Because what would happen is if you use them over and over again, they get out of calibration. They become less accurate. And they might, they might actually give you the wrong information. So you actually have to go and you have to recenter them, refocus them, recalibrate them. If I tracked the various seasons of doubt in my life, and I think if you did the same thing, you would find, you would find this to be true. If you trace the different seasons of doubt in your life, I'm guessing that virtually all of them would overlap with seasons of fear and anxiety about the things of this world. Life has a way of knocking us out of calibration. Life has a way, school has a way of decentering us, defocusing us. What we need, what we need is to be recentered, to refocus, to be recalibrated in the midst of our doubts. And that's what the psalmist does in this psalm. Twice in Psalm 42 and then once more in Psalm 43, they're probably originally the same psalm. He repeats the same line. It's his chorus. In the midst of his thirst, in the midst of his doubt, he chastises himself with these words. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And guys, this isn't psychology. I know uh, Brother Scott last week talked about how he's not a psychologist, and neither am I, right? But this isn't psychology. You know what this is? This is liturgy. It's not psychology, it's liturgy. This isn't David trying to talk himself back into faith. This is worship. This is recalibration. This is the remembrance that only comes along with worship. That only comes along with prayer. That our God is the rock. That our God is living. Our God is our hope. Our God is Savior. The book of Hebrews says in the very last chapter, Hebrews 13, to a people who themselves were struggling with their faith. He says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not move. The circumstances of your life might change, leading you into those dark seasons of doubt, those dark seasons of thirst. But your God is the same. He's still the rock. He's still present. He's still your hope. He's still your salvation. You need recalibrated. Hebrews also says in chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus. So that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Look to Jesus. When I'm just looking at myself and I'm just looking at my doubts, my fears, my anxieties, when that's capturing all of my attention and all of my focus, it's very easy to get overcome by my doubt. But when I refocus on Jesus, when I remember who He is, when I remember what He's done, when I remember His presence, even when I'm in a far off land, it refocuses me on what that truth is. Our doubts are an opportunity to worship. You know what haunts me the most from this psalm, to be honest with you, as I wrap this up? What haunts me the most from this psalm is, I see the desperation and the thirst from David, and it's easy to sing about it, but I'm also jealous of it. I'm jealous of it. I'm jealous of his passion. Jealous of his thirst. 
Jesus promised us water so that we could thirst no more, but there are far too many days, if I'm honest, and I know you're with me, there are far too many days where I've quenched my thirst from other waters. From other waters that can only temporarily satisfy. Temporary pleasures. Meaningless distractions. I don't have three easy steps for dealing with doubt. And neither does this psalm. Other than to say, just like anger, just like fear, just like guilt, you come and you offer those imperfect offerings to a perfect God and trust in His ultimate faithfulness. The patron saint of doubt in Scripture, I believe, is an unnamed father in Mark chapter 9. You know the story probably. He's got a son. A son who is in a lot of pain, in a lot of danger. A son who we're told has a spirit who tries to kill him over and over again. And I read this, I read this story again recently. I read it with different eyes though. And I broke down reading it. Because all I saw in this, all I saw in this text, I didn't see a dad that wanted to have an intellectual debate. I didn't see a dad who was asking apologetic questions. I saw a dad who was desperate for his son. I don't care what anybody else is saying. I just care about my son. God help my son. And Jesus says it's possible if you believe. And you know how he responds. He says, I believe. But help me in my unbelief. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. It's the honest prayer of a desperate doubter. It's the honest prayer of an honest apologist. I believe, but God help me in my unbelief. I believe enough that I even believe that you can work in the midst of my doubt because I know you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the circumstances of my life will never change that. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Let's pray. God, help us in our doubt. Help us in those dark seasons where we're overcome, where we're thirsty, where it feels like water is so distant. God, we pray that you would use those circumstances in our life to bring us closer to you, to remind us that you haven't left or abandoned us. The world may say, where is your God? We may say that at times ourselves. But God, in those moments, remind us. Center us. Recalibrate us. Keep these students, God, from being overcome by their doubts and their fears. Give them a resiliency and and the grit that they need to walk by faith in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.